Godliness with contentment is great gain. And gain is, is wonderful. Gain is a great word. Running backs love gain. Investors love gain. Um, jockeys uh, racing from the back of the pack love gain. Teenage boys in the weight room love gain. Gain is a great thing. And Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, how do we obtain the great gain of godliness with contentment, even in hard times? I think around 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day for a family of four. 15% uh, of those 71% live on less than $2 a day. So we sitting here are likely among the 29% top, like at the top 29% richest people in the world. And we all probably struggle to one level or, or another with contentment, with being content. Paul said, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Is it actually possible for us uh, to think and to live this way? I mean, that's a tall order. What, what if today you lost everything uh, except your clothes and some food and a dry place to sleep? Well, I think we'd all be struggling. Paul, a man who suffered big time, I mean, had horrible things happen in his life, actually said, and he actually believed with all of his heart that godliness with contentment is great gain, and that with food and clothing, Christians can be content. After all, they have Christ. They have Christ. What if there was a brand of contentment uh, that could survive poverty and persecution and pain? And then what if we had it? What if we actually had that kind of contentment? Jesus can give us a countercultural and a supernatural brand of contentment that survives the worst of circumstances, the worst of situations. Would you admit this morning that um, contentment is difficult for you? Uh, that, that living a pious life, a devout life, a virtuous life is really, really hard. Would you admit that? We desperately need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us through the word uh, so that we can be godly and, and content and very grateful to God. Paul explained how to live like this. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can live a godly and content lifestyle for the glory of God alone. Godliness and contentment are well within your reach because you are in Christ. And he is in you and he will help you gain and enjoy godliness with contentment. So here's an important foundational point as we head into these verses. The man of God with the gospel burning on his lips leads the charge of God's people into godliness and contentment. Don't forget that the Apostle Paul was writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to young pastor Timothy as he preached and taught and led the Ephesian church in the gospel, in gospel ministry. Paul was teaching this young pastor how the law and gospel uh, work out in a local church and in pastoral ministry. In chapter 6, Paul described these money-hungry false uh, teachers, but then contrasted them with the kind of pastor that Timothy was to be, the kind of preacher, the kind of teacher that he was to be. Some of these things then in, in, in this 
book are uniquely for pastors, but there is a broader application of all of it to everyone in the church, certainly, to understand the role of pastor uh, and elder, but then many other applications as well. So before we look at verse 11, I want you to think back a little bit to the false teachers that Paul uh, had been talking about, the ones that we saw last week. They taught strange doctrine, which did not agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. They were conceited, and they were ignorant, and they craved controversy and quarrels about words. False doctrine was burning on their lips uh, in hopes of riches. Their sick and twisted doctrine led people in the church right into envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And if we wonder, why is Paul talking so much about sound doctrine? Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Why is sound doctrine so important? Well, we need to simply realize where unhealthy or sick doctrine leads. Ruin and destruction. The false teachers were greedy and they saw godliness as a means of gain, as a means to get rich. Their desire to be rich pulled them into a pit of temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into what? Into ruin and destruction. They wandered from the faith and they pierced themselves with many pangs. And this is still happening with many pastors in many churches today. Here's why Paul was so concerned about Timothy's doctrine. Why he was so concerned that Timothy get the gospel, the law and the gospel, right? False doctrine leads people deeper into sin and misery. And right doctrine and sound doctrine leads people into ultimate joy in God. People need the law and gospel to know their sin and misery, to know the beauty of Christ and redemption, and to gratefully obey God unto his glory and their greatest joy. And Timothy was to lead people, he was to teach people, he was to preach people there through his teaching, through his faithful preaching. After talking about false teachers and the devastation of the, uh, that they bring through their teaching, Paul addressed Timothy and said, but as for you, O man of God, in other words, Timothy, you must be different. You must be a different kind of teacher. You must be a faithful minister who teaches people towards godliness and contentment through doctrine and personal example. Lead them into life, Timothy. Paul used the same kind of language in his second letter to Timothy, which makes sense. There was to be a stark difference between Timothy and the false teachers, not only in doctrine, but also in the way they lived their lives. When Paul said, oh, man of God, that oh was put there for emphasis, put there for emphasis. The, the title man of God is significant, too. It was used in the Old Testament of Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha and other leaders. So by using that title, appealing back to the Old Testament there, I think Paul was drawing attention to the unique role of Timothy, that the one that he had to preach God's word as God's ordained man. But there's also another sense of man of God that Paul may have been bringing out here. Timothy belonged to God and walked with God by faith, something that is true of all Christians. Now, not every Christian is ordained as God's man 
to preach the gospel as Timothy was, but every Christian is a man or woman of God in the sense that they belong to God and they walk with him by faith in the power of the Spirit. Good scholars understand Paul to, to mean that. So then these words are to a pastor as God's man set apart to preach uh, the, for the good of God's people, to preach the gospel. And yet in these words is a call to all men and women of the church, all men and women of God to imitate God's man as he leads them into godliness and contentment through teaching sound doctrine, a call to walk with God by faith because they belong to God. The ultimate man of God is, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who perfectly did all that Paul writes here. That's the beauty of it. So in the ultimate sense, we are just following by the Spirit Jesus as we flee, pursue, fight, grasp, and keep. And it is him who pursues these things, or produces, rather, these things in us. This was written to a pastor, but it is also for you as you seek to obey Christ. So here are five things, five things that you and I can do together by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is how to obtain the gain of godliness with contentment. Flee, flee, run, sprint away from certain things. This is not backpedaling as you stare at what you're moving away from. That's not what this is. This is escaping without looking back. It's escaping quickly, as fast as you can, and it's running to a safe place. Now, when my dad was a kid, he's here. Uh, they had a fresh air kid from Philadelphia through the fresh air program. Uh, stay with them for the summer. I think it was through the fresh air program. And uh, one day, the kid grabbed a kitchen knife and ran after my dad. And, uh, and so what did my dad do? He fled. He ran. What would you do? You run. My goodness. He ran as fast as he could. And I think they were circling the house. Is that right? Until grandma put a stop to that funny business. Okay. And it's great because my dad's still here. We're here. So my dad must have been faster. See that? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What was Timothy supposed to flee? What was he supposed to run from? the stuff that Paul had just talked about in the preceding verses. Flee the love of money, flee destruction and ruin, flee harmful and senseless desires, flee temptation, flee constant friction, flee evil suspicion, slander, dissension, envy, quarrels about words and controversy. Flee it all, Timothy. Flee sin, Timothy. Run. Don't mess around. In his second letter, Paul told, told Timothy, Flee youthful passions. Flee. Run. I think a great illustration of this is Joseph. Joseph was serving in the house of Potiphar, a great military man of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph, the, the scripture tells us, was a very handsome man. And Potiphar's wife wanted him sexually when no one was around. And Joseph was working in Potiphar's house one day. This woman grabbed Joseph by his garment and said, lie with me. And I would imagine, just thinking of the times and scripture and everything, that Potiphar's wife was probably very beautiful. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, um, but for a powerful military man in Egypt, a beautiful wife, probably likely, 
And right then and there was a moment to indulge in sexual pleasure and nobody had to know. Nobody was around. And what did Joseph do? Moses told us. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He fled. He left. He didn't kiss for a while and then leave. He didn't pull away only to pour two glasses of wine and then flirt for a while before he left. The man of God ran away right away. If you want to obtain the gain of godliness with contentment, you have to run away from sin and bad doctrine. And you have to do it right away. You have to do it every day. Now, try to remember this little axiom. I think it will help you. If you can just get the principle of this. It is very important to know what to run from, but it is even more important to know what to run to. It is important to know what to run from. It's very helpful, but we have to know even more what to run to. What you run to makes all the difference. You see, running from one sin only to pursue another sin doesn't gain you anything. You're still pursuing sin. You must run from sin and to Christ and his will for you. So the next component of obtaining the gain uh, of, of godliness with contentment is pursue. Pursue. As you run from, you need to run too. Paul said, but as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You know, just to maybe summarize that, pursue what Jesus pursued. Pursue what Jesus pursued. Now think about the Hollywood love story for a moment. Near the end of the movie, as it's kind of coming towards the end, the sad music starts playing and the sad girl heads to the airport and it's really sad and the guy is sad and the friends are sad and the family is sad because things don't seem to be working out and that's sad. And then something clicks and then the best friend like says right up in the guy's face, you know, go get her. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I think. And, and the guy gets the courage and the music starts to escalate and he jumps in the car and he's driving like a maniac to get to the to the airport and he's swerving in and out and, and I got to get to her before she boards the plane. I mean, this is a big moment. And, and that pursuit, that chase after uh, that happens because the guy wants the girl more than anything. It's, it's his love for her. She wants, he, he wants her. And so he's going to go get her. Well, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. Pursue, chase after the things of Christ because they are desirable. Well, what are those things? Righteousness. Timothy, pursue righteousness. Pursue doing God's will for God's pleasure. Pursue an upright lifestyle. Pursue morality. Now, please hang with me. This is very important you get this next point. Here in this verse, the word righteousness does not refer to the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive as a gift from God through faith. It does not mean justification. That kind of positional righteousness cannot be pursued because God gives it, he grants it as a gracious gift according to the kindness of his will. You don't work for that kind of righteousness. We can't pursue right standing with God. We are put into right standing with God when God takes initiative to justify us through Christ. The kind of righteousness in verse 11 is living righteously, doing God's will or obeying God's law precisely because 
you are already counted righteous by God. This kind of righteousness in verse 11 flows out of right standing before God via our union with Christ. That is a very important theological truth to understand or you'll misunderstand the gospel entirely. You, you cannot do a lot of good things to make yourself right with God. Only God can make you righteous by grace through faith in Christ. But when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you, you become righteous in his sight. You become counted or reckoned or, or credited that righteousness. He counts you as righteous. That is your position before God. And when you receive his glorious gift of the Holy Spirit, then you are now in a position to pursue living righteously by his spirit and grace. This is very, very important. In other words, I am righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, by the power of the spirit, I'm going to try to strive with everything that I have to obey God's law with honor, with integrity, with truthfulness, and with joy for God's ultimate glory. That's the idea. In Philippians 1.11, Paul talked about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's different than the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is an alien righteousness. Verse 11 is the righteous lifestyle that we pursue because we are united to Christ and led by the Spirit. Second, godliness. Timothy, pursue godliness. Pursue piety. Pursue devoutness. Pursue carrying out your covenant obligations. Third, faith. Timothy, pursue faith. Pursue complete and utter trust in God. Believe with confidence that God, uh, tell, what God tells you in his word. Believe all of it. Believe that it is true. Believe it is what you need. Trust God, Timothy. Fourth, love. Timothy, pursue love. Pursue a deep and devout affection for God and for God's people. Pursue a deep affection and, and, and tender love and heartbreaking love for even your worst of enemies. Pursue love in word. Pursue love in deed. Fifth, steadfastness. Timothy, pursue steadfastness. When things are tough, Timothy, keep going. Endure, press on, keep pressing ahead through exhaustion, through stress, through pain, and endure with joy and gratitude. Pursue endurance as you depend on God's preserving grace. Sixth, gentleness. Timothy, pursue gentleness. Pursue being kind, humble, and meek. Handle people, Timothy, with great care. Um, don't, don't be rough. Don't be harsh or aggressive. Be like Jesus who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Timothy, pursue what Jesus did. When you look at that list, that's a tremendous list of virtues. Jesus pursued all of them. That was his life. He pursued each of these verses, uh, virtues every single second of his life. That's what he was doing, and he fulfilled God's law entirely, so he was the perfection of all of these things and more. And that is why Jesus Christ is the quintessence of godliness with contentment. 
You know, apart from Christ, we are entirely content to pursue many senseless and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. That's what we want to do. If God allows us, apart from Christ, we're totally content with that. We are lawbreakers or covenant breakers apart from Christ. But as men and women of God, the story is different. We find contentment in gospel-powered pursuit of Christ and the virtues that he embodied. With the strong magnetism of the world's promises, pleasures, and possessions, is true godliness and contentment even possible for you and me? Do you understand how strong that pull? Are you feeling that strong pull of the world? How is godliness and contentment even possible? My goodness, here. If we flee illicit pleasures and pursue the greater pleasures of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, then absolutely godliness and contentment are within our reach. They, they will be part of our life. Run hard after virtue. And contentment is within your grasp. Next, fight. Fight. Battle. Struggle. Paul said, fight the good fight of the faith. The Christian life is not pacifistic. It's war. The Christian life is war, everyday war. Uh, first, the fight is a good fight. It's worth fighting. It's, it's, it's excellent. Someone once said, I already know what giving up feels like. I want to see what happens if I don't. What happens when you fight the good fight of faith? What's going to happen? And, and, and what does it mean to fight the good fight of faith? Well, it could mean in this context that as a pastor, Timothy was to fight for the Christian faith. The false teachers undermined the law and gospel with their crazy doctrine. So Timothy needed to fight to keep the, the gospel uncorrupted. But it could also mean that living the Christian life is a good fight. Obeying God. It, it's a rigorous struggle. It's hard to do. We need the spirit to do it. It's hard. It hurts sometimes. But it is always good. Maybe Paul meant both of those things. Uh, speaking about proclaiming Christ, Paul wrote this in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling, same word, or fighting or agonizing with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So right there is how to fight. We fight the good fight of faith with the energy that Christ powerfully works in us. We fight well when we trust Christ to give us energy and fight in the, in the fight of faith. The way to obtain the gain of godliness with contentment is to flee, pursue, and fight. Next, grasp, or you could say take hold. Paul said, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, there is, a, there is an order, if you look at the tenses and study this closely, there is an order here in the second part of verse 12 that is meaningful. See if I can't, can't do this, uh, explain this to you. First, Timothy was called to eternal life. Then Timothy made the good confession about eternal life. Only then, after that, could he strive to take hold of eternal life. And that order is significant. To be called to eternal life is what Reformed theologians refer to as God's effectual call. 
Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines effectual calling when he's saying called um, in verse 12. Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit. Who does it? God does it. Work of God's spirit by which convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So let me revisit that in terms of Timothy here. So the Holy Spirit convinced Timothy of his sin and misery, enlightened his mind to know Christ, renewed his will to want God and to want to to do God's will and persuaded him and enabled him to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. By grace, God wooed Timothy to Jesus. That's effectual calling. That's effectual calling. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, two essential verses in understanding God's effectual calling, God's effectual call inevitably ends with glorification. That's at the end of the line of that string. Or you could say eternal life. So, Though the gospel call goes out to everyone, though they hear the gospel call, God's effectual call goes only to the elect who are saved to eternal life. Now, if that's rocking your world, just stick on Romans 8, 29, and 30 and seek to understand what that verse means. I think it's going to help you big time understand what God's effectual call calling is all about. In verse 12, Timothy was first called wooed to Jesus Christ by God's sovereign grace. Then he made the good confession, which is likely referring to his public confession of Christ at his baptism. And then by the spirit, Timothy could strive to grasp eternal life. Now notice Paul told Timothy to take hold of what was already his in Christ. Uh, Now this is a little bit tricky. Again, stay with me here. Timothy had received eternal life in Christ. But Paul urged him to grab it. So what's going on with that? Eternal life is something that we have right now. It's ours, yet it is also something that we will obtain then. So we strive to obtain it then. So borrowing from the words of the late Princeton theologian Gerhardus Voss and applying them to verse 12, Paul was talking in terms of the already but not yet. Uh, Timothy already had eternal life in Christ, but it had not yet been fully realized. Uh, John Stott put it this way, quote, both a present possession and a future hope. End of of quote. Timothy, Timothy needed to take hold of that future hope. Maybe Philippians 3, 11 and 12 can help you understand this better. Paul said about the resurrection of the dead now, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because, this is very important, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The resurrection from the dead belonged to Paul because Christ Jesus made Paul his own, yet he had not yet obtained the resurrection or perfection, so he pressed on to make it his own because it was already his. That's the idea here. How do you you obtain the gain of godliness with contentment? You must first come to Christ by God's effectual calling. You must be wooed to Jesus Christ by God's sovereign grace. Apart from God's sovereign grace, you're not coming. When God draws you, you come. 
gladly, joyfully, freely, then you must make the good public confession of eternal life through Christ. Then you live out of that identity as God's man or God's woman to live to take hold of eternal life, which is rightfully yours in Christ. And as you do this, godliness with contentment is yours. Uh, Dr. George Knight said it this way. Thus, Paul tells Timothy, continually struggle the struggle of faith, i.e. persevere. And at the end, then, once and for all, lay hold of eternal life. Isn't that great? We struggle, but we grasp. It will be ours as we are in Christ. Lastly, keep. Keep. Flee, pursue, fight, grasp, keep. Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was once again charging Timothy. God was witness. Christ Jesus was witness. It was a serious charge to Timothy. And note that God is the origin of life. He graciously gives life every day to billions of people, most of whom hate him. Every day, life, life, giving. He gives life to everything. Tribes in Africa, stunning sea creatures far beneath the surface of the ocean, plants in the field, everything he is giving life. The creator is witness to this charge to Timothy. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he made a good confession. There's a little little hard to understand exactly what Paul was, was meaning there. But I think a great place to go would be the book of John to see what happened in that interchange before Jesus and Pontius Pilate. That's probably what Paul's referring to. So listen to that passage. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus made the good confession of his kingly rule, his kingly sovereignty, his kingly supremacy before a Roman governor, a powerhouse of Rome. I am the king and the good confession of the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. In fact, he was truth incarnate, standing before a man who was questioning the truth. Therefore, before Pontius Pilate, there stood truth in human flesh. What is truth? The eternal king and truth is witness to Paul's charge to Timothy. 
Now, what commandment is Paul referring to? Well, scholars disagree on this, and it's very hard for a guy like me who's trying to make sense of all this. There are at least eight different interpretations on this. You just want to say, well, wait, I... So we look at the text, and we say, what, what do we think is going on here? Was it the commandment given at Timothy's baptism or ordination? Was it referring to verses 11 and 12? Was it Paul's entire lever, uh, letter? I'm not exactly sure. But I take commandment to refer to the Christian faith. Uh, the injunction to walk by faith in the commandments of Christ. The same sense of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.7 where he said, I have kept the faith. You keep a commandment. You obey a commandment. So to keep the faith is to trust God through Christ and walk by the Spirit in the newness of life. I think I think that might be what he's getting at here, but to complicate it, the word keep can mean to obey, but it can also mean to guard, a sense of protection. So was Timothy to obey the commandment in the sense of obey Christ, or was he to guard the content of the Christian faith, to keep the gospel pure, uncontaminated, and irreproachable? Well, if you consider the false teachers that were going nuts in, in the Ephesian church, Guarding the gospel seems right. You've got to contend for this, Timothy. So that, that seems very reasonable to me. Perhaps Paul meant both. Sometimes writers do that. If Timothy was to protect, so think about this, was to protect the purity and integrity of the gospel, he would also need to obey Christ faithfully. So, so it's a package deal. So as a pastor, certainly Timothy needed to teach faithfully and ensure the gospel was not stained or reproached, but also to make sure that his lifestyle was not stained or reproached. Both upheld the gospel as the church is to do. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We must uphold the gospel. We must keep the gospel pure so that people can delight in its uh, true form, in its purity, yet our lives must also be unstained and above reproach. Someone claiming the name of Christian, just to say, I am a Christian, and, and yet to bring reproach on the gospel by the way that they live is shameful for any of us. May it never be that our lives bring reproach on the gospel. Yes, we are going to sin. That's why we need grace every day that we wake up, that we would not bring reproach to the gospel. Oh, God, hold me. Keep me from sin. Help me to flee. Help me to pursue the good things. And when I am distracted, may your sovereign grace pull me back. This is not that we're without for forgiveness, but our lives, if they are not in line with our confession, we bring shame and reproach to the gospel. Our Lord Jesus, he will appear again. He is coming back here, and until that day, we must keep the commandment so the gospel is admired in its purest form, cherished for what it really is, and not for what people caricature it to be because they see the terrible lives of the Christians who profess it. Now, let me try to pull all of this together like this. Sometimes the difficulty or seriousness of the situation can blind us to the obvious path we should take in that situation. We kind of start shutting down. Um, so here's what I mean. Some situations in life can be so overwhelming, so just, man, it heavy, you know, uh, that we don't know which way to go and we don't even know where to start, to start moving ahead. 
to get through it. We kind of shut down. And as we shut down, we miss very obvious steps to take, simple steps to, to move forward, to start going. And, and then something might happen to us. Maybe this happened to you, but so we might receive the counsel from a friend or hear a particular passage of scripture or a mentor tells us something. And all of a sudden it hits us like obvious. It hits us and, and we're thinking, how could I have missed that? It was right there. I knew the way. That, I mean, this was so simple. I just couldn't see it. Well, we get overwhelmed. We missed the way forward. Of course, we missed the simple way ahead because it was overwhelming. So with, with all the pressures and the stress and the distractions and the temptations uh, in life, being godly and content in this life can seem out of reach. I don't even know what to do to get there. I'm just trying to eke out a day, you know? What, how am I going to get through this? And, well, it is out of reach, apart from Christ. Um, godliness with contentment is impossible without the grace of God working in us, without the Spirit leading us. Yet, the pathway to obtain the gain of godliness with contentment is actually obvious. It's a tough road. It's hard to go that way, but it's an obvious road. So here's the obvious way ahead into godliness with contentment. If you haven't gotten it by now, number one, you flee sin. Say no to it. You, you, you turn away from it. You don't put yourself in situations where you're tempted and where you're prone to sin. You flee. That's what you do. That's easy to understand. Turn and run. That's what I'm doing. That surprised some of your friends in certain circumstances. That where, where's Jack? You know, well, he left. Number two, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You pursue those things. By grace, you chase after virtue. This is not rocket science. This is not hard to understand. You sit under good preaching regularly. If you're a visitor, hopefully your church is preaching the gospel faithfully. Sit under preaching. You participate in the sacraments. You, you sit in the way of God's means of grace. You take those things. You surround yourself with people who encourage you towards these virtues, namely your church family who cares most about your spiritual progress in Christ. You seek out spiritual oversight and leadership in your life and accountability to which will help you pursue these virtues. You immerse yourself in Scripture. Do, do not expect much if you're not totally immersed in Scripture, uh, which trains you in these virtues. Number three, you fight the good fight of faith. You, you stay in the war. You stay at it. You don't give up. You, you fight. You take bullets. You keep surging ahead in the war because, and this is very important, God is at work in you. That's why you fight. His grace. Four, you grasp eternal life. You were called. You made a good confession. Now take hold of the eternal life which belongs to you in Christ. Live your life in a way that at the end of it, you grasp eternal life. And number five, you keep the commandment. Live the Christian life as it's meant to be lived. Take it seriously. Obey Christ. Do whatever he tells you in, in your word. Or in his word. Now, I, I need to end here. These are imperatives. They're commands from God to us. So we need to listen. But 
They're not imperatives to do in order to earn right standing before God or to earn his approval. They're not. In Christ, you already are in right standing with God and are as accepted and as loved as you ever will be. God will not love you more in a billion years than what he loves you right now. You have the fullness of God's love. He accepts you in Christ. Doing these things that I'm giving you something to do, something very practical that scripture gives us, all that it is is a response to the grace of God in our lives. It's a response, a response of love, a response of gratitude. Oh God, I can't earn it from you. You've simply given me everything in Christ and therefore I am so thankful for you. I'm going to do this. That's very different than what you hear of religion. You have to do this in order for God to love you. That will bury you. The gospel just encourages you have everything in Christ. Now focus on doing what he wants you to do by his spirit. When you falter, when you fail, his grace stays with you. Two polar opposite worldview and ways to see scripture even. Be very careful you see the scripture through the lens of Christ and the gospel. These imperatives are beautiful. These imperatives are within your reach as Christians. Blood-bought children of God. They're beautiful. And by trusting Christ, you'll receive from him as you walk by the spirit, the power and the energy you need to to do these things. Never perfectly, but with a, a hard effort as people who are grateful. For God's grace. Uh, these are supernatural things. They're hard things. They're supernatural things. But they're infinitely good things. They're the best of things. So when these things become your ambition in life, you will be content with food and clothing as God gives you grace. Because above all, God has given you Christ. And he is all you need. Do you really believe that? Christ is all you need. All you need. You have everything in him. So let us be grateful for the immeasurable riches and pleasures that we have received in Christ. Father, thank you so much for your honesty and, and, and for being a truthful God that, that tells us exactly what we need to hear from your word that we can, by your spirit, adjust to it. There's a lot of imperatives here that we need to do, things that we need to do if we're ever going to be godly and content. And God, you are working these things in our lives by your grace, by the leading of your spirit. These are not things that we can do to earn your approval because we already have your approval. You gave it before we were living for you. You gave it to us in Christ. You sought us. You bought us. And now that we belong to you, you equip us with everything to do your goodwill. We have Christ. He's all we need. So help us to be godly with contentment because that is tremendous gain for us. Thank you for giving us all the gain that we could possibly imagine in Christ alone. For your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Tim, would you uh, lead us in a response? We invite you to stand and respond in gratitude through song, the song of Moses.
strengthens all. High his praise to him belongs. Christ the Lord, the conquering King. Your name we raise, your child's name. Praise the Lord, the mighty warrior. Praise the Lord, the glorious one. By his hand we stand in victory. By his The storm of hell pursued in darkest night we worship you into God, the raging sea from death to life you save me. Praise the Lord, almighty warrior, praise the Lord, the glorious one, by his hand. All the saints and angels bow, those of heaven crying out, glory, glory to the King, you reign for all the song, Fairest Lord Jesus.
God bless you. It's good to be with all of you. I hope you have a fantastic uh, day of rest. May you receive the Lord's word for you, dear children of God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.